Hi, folks. Today we are talking about data. Today we have Mohit Aron from Cohesity. Hi, Mohit. Who are you, and what do you do? Hey, Martin. Good morning from California. I'm Mohit Aron. I'm the founder and CEO of Cohesity, which is a storage company that intends to disrupt the secondary storage market. Cool. What is the secondary storage market? Yeah. So to understand that, let's look at storage in a data center. It can roughly be divided into two parts. One is called primary storage, and the rest is called secondary storage. Primary storage is what keeps your business humming. It's the one where you run your mission-critical applications, and everything else is secondary storage. Everything else that is not mission-critical, does not require strict SLAs, is secondary storage. An example is backups or test and development, or uh, analytics. You know, most of analytics is not mission critical. All this falls under secondary storage. That's the definition of secondary storage. Okay, cool. So when did you start Cohesity and what did you do before? I started Cohesity in June 2013. And before that, for a little more than three years, I was uh, the brains behind and the founder and CTO of a company called Nutanix, who are looking to possibly go IPO this year. Cool. Uh, they're in the area of primary storage, where I, along with the rest of my team, invented the concept that is now called hyperconvergence. And that's what that company is about. Cool. So the other company that you started is about the primary storage, and another current company is about the secondary storage. So no competition problems, so to speak. <laughs> yes, no, yeah, no, no IP or uh, overlap problems. I did not want to kind of compete with uh, my own baby, so to say. Yeah, right. Cool. And how did you come up with this idea of going to the secondary storage? So what type of problem did you see that you wanted to target and solve? Yes. So I think the best way to describe that is, you know, the light bulb moment when uh, I saw the opportunity that uh, there is a business here. And that arose from a single question, which was that why are backups an insurance policy? So if you think about it worldwide in enterprises, people spend billions of dollars doing backups. And yet, Backups are nothing more than an insurance policy. You never use them until you lose data or you need to retrieve something for compliance purposes. And so that does not make sense. There is all this backup infrastructure sitting out there that is just there for peace of mind. So that didn't rhyme well. So the question was, why are they just an insurance policy? Why not do more with them? And that's what led me on an exploration path, which led to Cohesity. Mm. And when I'm thinking about storing data, also if you think of as an insurance premium or so, what makes your company unique if I can use like other Hadoop clusters, for example? Yes. So Hadoop clusters are more for doing analytics. So here is the reason why our company is unique. We are cohesively addressing the whole of secondary storage. Most other secondary storage solutions only address one aspect of secondary storage or one pain point. Mm -hmm. So let me give you a few examples. Today, there is one device which you have to buy from one vendor for just doing your backups. And then there is another one for just doing analytics. And you just mentioned Hadoop for that. And then there is another one on which you run test and development. And all these devices are not 
used at the same time. One might be idle, other ones might be used. You have to buy them from different vendors, manage them through different UIs. So there is all that fragmentation that today plagues secondary storage. What makes us unique is that we are the first one who want to consolidate all these different workflows into one platform. And that's a very holistic look at secondary storage. And that differentiates us from whatever has been done in the past. So for example, imagine a platform that can do both backups and analytics and test and development and maybe some file sharing. So we are bringing together these workflows that used to run in silos on one hyper-converged and infinitely scalable platform. That's what we're about. Understood. So like if I want to rephrase that, it's basically a data app store, yeah, so to speak. Yes, a data lake, if you may want to call it, yeah. uh, along with other stuff, which, you know, for example, if multiple things run on you, you also need to prevent them from stepping on each other. So you need those controls. So a data lake with all that stuff. Cool. So when you go back in time, like imagine the first two or three months or so, what have you been working on? What was a typically day in the life of Mohit? Right. So, you know, I like to say the company starts on a vision, actually on a light bulb moment, and I described the light bulb moment to you. And then, you know, the next thing you should do or any entrepreneur should do is a lot of planning for the future. So, you know, there are a lot of filters you apply and a lot of planning, you know, in terms of engineering and product management that is done. And then beyond those first few months, It's all about executing on that plan. So a day in the life of Mohit was basically doing a brainstorming to design, a, you know, how the implementation of the vision would look like. And then also charting out a plan on basically literally which month we would do which part of engineering. And so I, you know, at the end of it, I gave my VCs, who I raised money from three or four months into the company, I gave them a plan which basically said that two years from then, I would GA the product based on my plan. And lo and behold, in October 2015, we GA'd our product. And so startups, you know, are a lot about predictability. I mean, a lot of people think that a lot of it comes from luck, but the most successful startups actually plan it all. And then it becomes a matter of execution. Mm -hmm. And in those first three or four months before you raised money from venture capitalists, how did you assemble a team supporting you and working on this? And how did you finance it? And what did you try to achieve during that time in order to show that much traction to investors so that they invest money into your company? Right. So I would say the process actually started before I incorporated the company. I actually incorporated the company in June. But the brainstorming with the initial guys started much earlier, around March 2013. And so basically I have, well, from my last company, I had built up a little bit of a reputation. So people wanted to join me in whatever I want to do. And the best way to kind of help them start or we all start is for us to do brainstorming. So for a good two to three months, we were literally sitting and dissecting the market on what are the gaps in the market. So we, we dissected the market into storage, virtualization, security, mobile space, any area that we felt we have the expertise to address. And then we looked at 
all the past companies in the last three years that VCs have funded in those areas. And that led us to kind of draw patterns on where the world is moving in those areas and where the gaps are. And once we kind of were happy with the gaps, then we made a decision, okay, well, this gap is worth doing a company on. And that's what led to the founding of the company. And once the company was founded, it was all about setting and then doing a different kind of brainstorming, which was about you know, how the design of the product is going to look like and how the planning is going to look like in the future. So those were the first few months of the company. And your question was, how did I assemble the team? Well, they just kind of followed. Some of them came, they had worked with me in past companies. Some of them had heard about me. Some of them were just interested in joining an early stage startup and they heard from some friends that, you know, there might be one coming here. Mm-hmm. So just a plethora of people. So we had about somewhere between five and 10 people that we had. And I funded it myself. I put in some of my money. You got to realize that, you know, just renting a small space doesn't cost much here in California. It costs about $1,000 a month. And so I rented a place where we all used to come and we used to do brainstorming. I wasn't paying any salaries before uh, the company was founded. Now, once the company was founded, uh, I put in some money of my own to basically pay the salaries and these were smaller salaries with the understanding that once we get the proper series a money we will be going to market salaries and so that's how the company bootstrapped Mm -hmm. so one question comes up to my mind when i'm talking to other tech founders sometimes they are talking about ip issues or intellectual properties so to speak And how did you manage that? Because you had two phases in the starting phase. You had one, which was an informal one, where different people brainstormed about a solution, how to move forward. And then you had a formal kind of setup of the legal entity, which is more kind of clear who owns the IP on what is generated. How did you migrate from this informal state to the formal state so that you are sure that nobody comes after you? That is a fantastic question. And any entrepreneur who is kind of brainstorming before doing a company should follow what I did. So I took advice from a lawyer and the lawyer said, okay, do this. You know, you've rented a space for doing the brainstorming. Now you make everyone, whoever comes and does brainstorming with you, they should sign uh, something that says any ideas generated under that roof belong to me. And so what that means is no one can kind of come behind and say, well, you know, that was my idea because those ideas are, they belong to me. Now, if you're not happy with that, then, well, you can't come to that brainstorming. And so that was the arrangement we had and it was on my honor. So let's say we came up with five ideas and we decide to pursue one of those ideas ourselves for doing the company. Now, the other guys were welcome to pursue the other ideas. And it was on my honor that I will not go behind them and say, hey, even though the IP belongs to me, if they become big or something later on, that I will come behind them. That's on my honor. That's on my reputation. And if you're not happy with this arrangement, well, you just don't have to come. Mm -hmm. So that's how I protected. So literally had some written statements from these guys that um, any ideas that uh, were generated are going to be assigned to me. Makes sense. So when you talked to this venture capitalist, how did you reach out to them? I suppose you had some initial contacts already because you started a company before. And what was your pitch like to them in order so they ship um, a significant amount of money? Yes. So I will talk about what happened in my case, but I will also talk about what happens generally 
to any other entrepreneur out there because what happened to me is not general enough because I had a little bit of a reputation from my last company. So venture capitalists were actually knocking down my doors. Literally, as soon as I left my last company, every week I used to have two or three meetings with venture capitalists. I did not invite those meetings. They wanted to just fund whatever I do. So it was literally me who was holding back, taking the funding. And as soon as I was ready, literally in three days, the funding was closed and it was closed from the best VC in town, which is Sequoia. So that was a little bit special, but I think the way a regular entrepreneur who, you know, is maybe doing the company for the first time, my advice to that entrepreneur is the way to proceed would be to first get the idea honed down, you know, do the kind of brainstorming that I suggested. And then once it's finessed a little bit, what they should do, and at this stage, they probably have two or three ideas that they think they can do a company on. Now they should go and reach out to some friendly VCs, VCs that maybe their friends know are friendly, and just informally work with them and have them tell you what they think about the idea, rather than just going and formally pitching to the VC, and then it becomes a zero or a one decision, a yes or a no decision. What I would recommend is go to the VCs, just have informal discussions on a whiteboard, tell them what you are doing, have them help you in finessing the idea. And towards the end of it, you and that VC have together worked on the idea to its uh, finesse. And then he's far more convinced to put the money in. And you can do it with a couple of VCs or just one VC. I think that's a very uh, productive way of uh, shortening the time you can engage with VCs. As opposed to just kind of, you know, reaching out to VCs, okay, I'm coming to present and now tell me you're willing to fund me or not. For a new entrepreneur, that can be kind of taxing because, you know, VCs are all about risk management and they may not jump right away. So imagine I'm a first-time entrepreneur. I have some idea. Maybe I have already an MVP and tested and have some minor traction. And now I would like to follow your steps and say, okay, I want to find one, two, three VCs that are well-known, have sufficient capital to put up, and I want to get in touch with those in order to have this kind of whiteboard sessions. How do I convince them to spend, I don't know, one hour, two hours? I don't know how much time typically you will do that. With what type of pitch would I try to convince them? I would, first of all, recommend going to them through someone you know who is in touch with them. One example is, you know, there are angels throughout the valley, and these angels can connect you to VCs or I'm sure everyone has friends who have done companies in the past and uh, they've uh, worked with these venture capitalists. If you don't have that, well, try finding out just by talking to people who these friendly VCs are and just maybe, you know, writing them an email with possibly a pitch deck and then saying that you're, you want to just come and uh, socialize with them. So that's the way you can start, you know, and then go from there. And I'm sure... You know, there will be a lot of dings in the beginning. Not every VC would open up to it, but I'm sure you'll find some because you also have to realize that not only are entrepreneurs searching for VCs, VCs are also searching for entrepreneurs because they have all this money that they have to invest. Mm -hmm. And if uh, your profile looks good on paper, if you've worked in good companies, your background is good, they actually want to engage with you. They want to see if uh, they can help you. And get uh, a business started. It's all about investing money. The VCs are actually there in the business to invest money. So you would be surprised how good the VCs are in uh, being helpful because it's in their own benefit. They can potentially 
get an insight, an early insight into where the company might go and uh, they get to invest at an early stage. Imagine I would have come up with a similar idea of cohesity of going for the secondary data storage market. How would I then, say, select some VCs that I would like to talk about my business model? Because I don't want to compete with lots of portfolio companies of specific VCs, maybe because I don't want to give some insights which they then can use for companies that they've already invested in. How would I then decide? The way you decide is, so you look at, you know, the various VCs in town who are known to invest in storage. Every VC is good in something, you know, they have a couple of areas they specialize in. And so you'll choose a couple of VCs who have invested in storage in the past. Then you will look at their portfolio and see if there is any company that conflicts with what you do. So those VCs are out. You'll not go to them. They will not be able to fund you. And so from the remaining list that is left, you would say, okay, you know, here are the individual partners at these VC firms that might be interested in funding something like this. So then you would try to find out ways to connect with them through friends, through other known people in the valley, or, you know, just a blanket email if nothing else works. And so that is how I would advise going about stuff. Great. Good. Let's start about thinking once you've developed some kind of MVP of your platform, how did you find and acquire the first customers? And can you give us some kind of insights on what a typical customer or customer segments look like? Yeah, you know, let's step back a little bit and understand there is a method to the madness. So I would encourage everyone to study what is called the technology adoption curve, which was proposed by a gentleman called Jeffrey Moore in a book called Crossing the Chasm. So it's a very famous technology adoption curve. And, you know, so what an entrepreneur needs to realize is that in the initial adoption is done by what are called early adopters, right? Early adopters and innovators. Mm -hmm. And then uh, once that phase has passed, there is a chasm, a big chasm that they have to cross. And then there is something called the early majority. And so the early phases of the company, the first three or four years of the company are all about these phases. And your MVP has to not target the early innovators. It has to target the early majority because those are the guys who will eventually determine that you'll be successful. An early majority is defined roughly as customers who normally will not buy from a startup, but their pain is so high that they cannot go to any branded company out there mm -hmm. to find a solution for what they do. So your MVP is addressing a pain point for the early majority. Now, once you've developed that MVP, now the way to find an early adopter is, uh, you know, there are several ways. An early adopter might just be through a friend working at a company and you say, hey, can you do me a favor and start testing my product or introduce me to someone in your company that as a favor will start testing your product. That's one. There is no reason for him to buy. He's just doing you a favor. Another way to do that is, you know, I would encourage entrepreneurs to find some influential advisors. And these advisors might be executives from successful companies in related areas. So the whole idea is not only do they give you advice on what to do and what not to do, but they also potentially connect you to customers. And so in my company, I got my early adopters through my advisors. I have, uh, you know, advisors from Riverbed. Uh, you know, there are a couple of gentlemen. One is 
called Eric Wolford. And these are the advisors that connected me to Riverbed customers. And these were good customers of Riverbed that had developed relationships with these advisors uh, over time. And so they were more than willing to listen to them and say, okay, you know, I think I trust your word that this is a technology I need to look at. And I know it will be rough in the beginning, but I'm willing to help these guys. I mean, they also feel great that they are kind of helping a new entrepreneur and a new company. Mm -hmm. So that's how we got our first product in their hands. For us, one of the earliest ones was, uh, as you know, uh, thankfully, a company, a large company called Tribune Media in Chicago. And the CIO of that company, his name is David Jim Bruno. He's a big fan of what we do. And he was more than happy to be an early adopter and go through those rough edges. And you will find actually in press releases that he talks a lot about us because we have improved his data centers tremendously, cutting down costs and stuff. Mm -hmm. That's what an early adopter sees, that yes, he understands that there's going to be you know, bumps in the beginning, but eventually the end goal for his organization is good. And especially when your advisors are saying that this person, this company is to be trusted, something to be looked at, they will jump. So that's how you start. You know, maybe your VCs introduce you to those customers, maybe your advisors introduce you, maybe some friends introduce you. That's how you start. And you make those guys happy. You make those initial customers very happy. You're very responsive. You're engaged with them. You develop relationships with them. That's how you start. And once uh, they help you finesse the product a little bit, then you go forward and maybe get a few more early adopters. And then once you're happy that there is some early adoption, that's when you try to cross the chasm and start shooting for early majority. Mm -hmm. Remember, though, that your MVP was already made for that early majority. So now you're ready for taking on the market. Good. Mohit. Imagine I'm starting a company and I'm looking for this type of advisors that you referred to. How do I find, convince and incentivize those people? Yes. You know, there are various ways. You can, again, find them through friends. You know, if you have VCs, I mean, by this time, I mean, you have a product and you're going to customers. So you probably have, have some venture capitalists. Those guys will connect you. They will recommend who, you know, might be relevant in your field. You yourself would know, you know, from the past. So, so as an example, I'm doing a storage company, but it also happens to be an enterprise company. So I know that other enterprise companies are going to be relevant. So senior guys at other storage companies or senior guys at enterprise companies, I gave an example of Riverbed, which was an enterprise company. So I know that senior people from that company would be relevant and they can give me good advice. Uh, into how I should proceed. Mm -hmm. So that's how you know. And then the way you connect to them is uh, either your VCs or uh, your other advisors or maybe some friends. In my case, a little bit of the reputation helped, a little bit of my past helped. They, these guys, some of these guys had already connected to me at, when I was the CTO of my last company. So I got some of them through that. Other guys, I just got you know, just through friends, through VCs, my Sequoia connected me to some of them. That's that's how you connect. It's very organic. There's no set formula for getting these guys. Mm -hmm. And the way you incentivize them is uh, basically you provide them with some equity. So they vest for providing that advice over the next couple of years. And it's very standard in the Valley. So, you know, you choose. I mean, it's uh, these are standard numbers uh, based on how early the company is. It might be a little bit more than a little bit less. But there is a range. And as long as you're within the range and uh, these guys are actually interested in helping you out, they will become your advisors. And uh, that's how you start. What is the typical equity range in the valley for advisors? 
Well, if you're very early, it might be, you know, depending on the quality of the advisor, it ranges from maybe 0.1% to 0.5%. Uh, now, it depends on uh, what's the caliber of the advisor. Has, be, has he been a CEO of a big company and is a big name? Then clearly he'll be on the higher side. But if he has not been that, then it's a little bit on the lower side. It also depends on how early the stage the company is. If you're just starting out, maybe it's a little bit on the higher side. Eventually, it's also a little bit of negotiation. Yeah. But on average, on average, maybe 0.1 or 0.2%, you know, that's what the advisors will take. And because you said that they are also vesting, is it also similar like with employees who are vesting that if the advisor does not yeah, perform well after six months, 12 months, 18 months whatsoever, that he will not continue to vest anymore? Yeah. So, I mean, the clauses, these are up to your lawyers. So your lawyers will draft up the advisory agreements and the agreement says, that in case either of you is not happy with each other, you can terminate that advisory agreement. And so, yes, as soon as you terminate that agreement, he will stop to vest. So it's exactly like kind of like an employee. Yeah. He just doesn't have the other benefits that employees enjoy. He's not paid a salary. He doesn't have any health benefits. All he does is he basically vests equity. In rare cases, you may even be paying a salary. I have not done that with any of my advisors. But I know some companies that do that. They kind of also pay a little bit of salary to their advisors. It's all based on negotiation. But generally speaking, it's just equity. And they vest and that's it. And if you don't like what they do, well, you can terminate the advisory agreement. Mohit, imagine a friend of you comes to you and says, Mohit, I want to start a company. What type of learnings did you generate for yourself that you can share with him so he makes less mistakes? Yeah, so very interesting question. You know, the first question. I ask is, are you doing a company just for the sake of doing a company, just because you want to become an entrepreneur? That's the wrong reason for doing a company. A company is all about, in my mind, two points. The first point is where the world is today. And the second point is how the world will change when your company is selling the product. And that difference, unless it's meaningful, you really don't have a company. And the entrepreneur needs to have a passion for changing the world in that way. It shouldn't be that he got the idea from somewhere, but he really doesn't have a passion. He's just doing it because uh, he wants to be an entrepreneur. So that's the first thing I say, that you really, really need to have a passion for changing the world in that fashion with your idea. If you don't, then you need to think twice about whether this is for you because there are going to be headwinds when you do it and it will make you question whether this is worth it. And the only thing that will keep you going is your passion. That's the first. But then second, you know, I like the entrepreneurs to, to think about whether it's a, a business or whether it's just a project within a company. A lot of people, they are working in some company and they come up with a cute idea that would be helpful to the company that they're working in, but it's not a business in itself. So evaluating whether it's a business, and I use a bunch of filters for that, I'll give you some examples. One example is how big is the market? How big is the TAM, the total addressable market? If the market is less than you know, $5 billion big, you're going to have a hard time you know, selling in that market and very likely VCs will not even fund you. That's one of the filters. Another filter that I have is how long is it going to take to build maybe a $100 million business? And if the answer is uh, you know, 20 years, uh, well, you know, VCs again are probably not going to fund you. So some of these filters are applied to the idea that you have. And then as a result, you evaluate whether it's a viable business or not. A lot of entrepreneurs, they are technical. 
and uh, as I am, by the way. Mm-hmm. And we all, we techie guys, fall into the trap where we get seduced by the cuteness of the technology. But a company, uh, very frankly, is all about building a business, and there has to be a business behind that technology. Otherwise, you know, it's going to be a very frustrating journey. So that's what I advise. You know, the, my advice is uh, to evaluate the business behind the technology. Uh, you know, there's a phrase, is it a solution in search of a problem? Yeah. So, so, so as long as there is a problem and the problem is big and you can actually build a business around it and then you can come up with a solution for that. And that's what I start off as my first advice. Cool. And how do you approach the strategic thinking? So how do you enter a market once you've defined, for example, that you want to go after the secondary data storage market? Yeah. Because you need to define some kind of market entry strategies and how you want to put yourself and your company into a position of competitive strengths. Yeah? And uh, how do you approach this from a thinking perspective? Right. So first of all, in my mind, look, there are all sorts of companies. There are me too companies which are just doing something that someone else has already done. There are companies that are really trying to innovate and push new boundaries. I like to do the latter because it's much easier entry. Uh, you are addressing a pain that no one else can address. So the first thing I'd like to do, and this comes from the brainstorming that I talked about earlier, the first thing I like to do is, you know, in that brainstorming, address uh, or identify those gaps that exist in the market. So you look at maybe the storage space and you chart out in the last three to five years all the companies that have gotten formed. And then you question, why did they get formed? Why did the VCs fund that? What do these companies want to accomplish? And with that, you know, you have an idea of the gaps. You start seeing the gaps that, okay, you know, there is a gap here that no one has addressed. And then you question whether it's worth doing a business on that gap. And once you've made sure that you have a business, you've essentially made sure that once you build a product there, you don't have anyone else who, you know, is quite doing what you're doing. So now you're addressing a pain that no one else quite can. Now there is a risk. Uh, you know, you may take about two to three years to build your product, your first product. Someone might copy you in that time. So one of the things that you got to make sure of is whatever you do, it should be hard to copy. It shouldn't be that a Stanford grad comes out and in three months he's able to assemble a team of college grads and they're able to copy you. Then that's one of the filters I use. Then it's not a viable business. Mm-hmm. And so essentially now you've made sure that once you've come out, it's A, going to be hard to copy you. And B, there is no one quite doing what you have been doing. Now it's uh, all about entering the market. Now it becomes a problem of identifying who the early adopters are. And that's where your advisors and your VCs would help. So given that you had identified a viable pain point and the fact that no one else quite is doing or addressing that pain point, now the next step is to get those early adopters and have them use your product. And once they see the light of the day, maybe one day they will buy. So that's uh, how you basically go about it. Great. Thank you so much for your time, Moet, and for the advice that you share with our audiences. Yeah, sure. Welcome.